Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're on the hunt for an absolute flop in Mel Brooks' 1968 film, The Producers. Step one, we find the worst play in the world, a surefire flop. Springtime for Hitler. Step two, I raise a million bucks and a lot of little old ladies in the world. I love you. I love you. What? I love you! Step three, you go back to work on the books. Only list of backers, one for the government, one for us. Hey, I Step four, we open on Broadway. Step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take our million bucks and we fly to Rio de Janeiro. We're still uh, we're still hanging with the uh, movies and their remakes. We Andy. are indeed. Now we yes. finished the, this whole Thomas Crown nonsense, and now we're into Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. Uh, first, this is the first. Is this the first Mel Brooks film we've done? This is, and and why not start with his first film? I think that's a. This is a good place to start. It's a good <laughs> place go. to start. And I um okay. I, I know we need to talk about this this movie and its place in history and all that that stuff. But here's the thing: I uh, when we finished the show last week, you ended by telling me that this is not one of your favorite Mel Brooks movies. I did say that. I have been I've been hurting since then. I've been which hurting. is funny because because you really had hardly ever seen this one. You've spent most I, of your time dabbling in the in the film version of the musical. I know, and let me tell you why that is. Because of my family, these yahoos I live with who <laughs> want the musical stuff. And what I'm telling you is, I love this movie. I have a blast with this movie. I can't believe that I don't watch it more often. It's fantastic. And I'm watching it last night, and my kids pile in bed. It's a school night. I don't care. We're watching Max Bialystok. And uh, they watch the, the last part of it with me, and we're in hysterics. Hysterics at this movie. Please tell me it performed better in your esteem this time. It really did. Oh God! Why do you say it like that? Uh, I was uh. I was letting you letting you hang on it for a little bit there. I I um yeah my my recollection of this was I really didn't like the characters, and I found it to just be uh, kind of a, a tougher project to get through because I had to deal with these really unlikable characters for the duration of it. And I I mean Zero Mostel is he is a very angry man. <laughs> he plays a very angry man. Through the film, um, Gene Wilder does a great job of of being like a hysterical ninny, and um, but yeah, I just never connected with them, and I always had a hard time. Um, my Mel Brooks favorite is always um, uh, Young Frankenstein, and Spaceballs mm-hmm. is is right up there, and then it's a star, it's a it's a steep drop. <laughs> Melbourne's yeah. quality for me. I, I find, I mean, I haven't seen all of them, but of the ones that I've seen, I, I find um, them much less appealing. And I've, I'm one of those guys who's never been a big fan of Blazing Saddles either. But after rewatching this and finding so much joy in these characters, and um, I, I think I just needed a little more age in me to kind of connect with these characters more. 
Um, <laughs> I kind of actually want to go back and revisit some of the Mel Brooks movies that I didn't like as much and see if maybe I like them more now too. Cause I thought this was just an absolutely fantastic film. Andy, this is like, we've just had spring awakening here. <laughs> you could say springtime for Hitler. <laughs> Uh, so what does this movie say about the time in which it was uh, produced? Did you pull anything out of that? Why is it important? That's, I, we, and we should say, again, for those who are just joining us, <laughs> I hope you know where we're coming from. But if you're new to the show, uh, we are our overall arc, our master arc here is we're, we're talking about films that uh, are celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. So we're talking about the films of 1968 uh, somehow in our, our series. And this one, I think we're kind of cheating. Is this really 68 everywhere? I it see it really is 68. It's really I know. 68. They do Why that do because do that? it had an official premiere in Pittsburgh in 1967. Um of which, according to Mel Brooks, it was him and some of the people from his team, um, some of the money men, and a bag lady. <laughs> and the the money men were so uh, disappointed with with it that they almost pulled it. And it was well, I, I'll I guess I could just tell. Now there's there's an interesting story because. Uh, Peter Sellers, he'd originally talked to Peter Sellers about playing the part of Leo Bloom, um, and but then he never ended up hearing from Peter Sellers again. So he's like, well, I guess he's not interested. Um, weird circumstance. Uh, there's this uh, random movie night that Peter Sellers was setting up with some friends and where, you know, they'd watch a movie and have dinner and uh, they like they would bring a meal that related to the movie and. And so he did his night and they would do it at this theater and he did his night. And then this, uh, this other director, and I'm going to forget who it was, had the next night and he said, Oh, I'll do this Italian movie and I'll bring, I'll bring, um, a meal and all this wonderful stuff and it'll be a great time. And so they went to uh, watch and Peter Sellers was super excited about seeing this, this, uh, it was a Fellini picture. And they get there and, uh, and he's like, let's, I think it was like Vitelloni or one of those films. And he's like, well, let's put it on. And the guy's like, uh, I didn't know I was supposed to bring it. I just assumed it was going to be here. <laughs> and so, so Peter Sellers was like, what do you mean you don't have the movie? He's like, I didn't know. And so they, they, or they call up to the booth and, or the guy from the booth calls down. He's like, you know, I've got this print of this movie, The Producers. I, I'm not supposed to show it, but, uh, you know, you guys can watch it if you want to. And so they watched it, <laughs> and Peter Sellers loved it. He just fell completely in love with it. He called people in L.A. and told them about it. He um, he wrote a letter, actually, that was printed in Variety telling people how they had to go see this movie. It was just like the funniest movie he had ever seen. And uh, so it... it kind of ended up creating a little buzz it still didn't you know get another premiere until 1968 and that in new york where people kind of knew who mel brooks was and that was a successful right. premiere and then it finally was released but i mean that's kind of the story of how it, yes technically it had a premiere in 1967 <laughs> but okay All <laughs> thanks right. to peter sellers we actually have the movie we'll stick with 1968 for our purposes it yes. is mel brooks first uh first uh, a direction uh, his first directed film right correct uh, and it was it could have been the uh, the fine uh, Gene Wilder's first film too 
it was on the cusp of being Gene Wilder's first film uh, until uh, in, until it took three years to get the money made. So uh, I, I like to think of it as Gene Wilder's first spiritual like first film. It may as well have been because Bonnie and Clyde, I mean, it was the same year or as a year yeah. before, I guess, but and his before. part was relatively small. So there wasn't yeah. much to it. So this was definitely his first leading role. And I think it's fair to say that he uh, deserves the accolades for his performance. Yeah. I am laughing from, uh, you know, the <laughs> opening frame of this movie. Uh, I uh, First of all, they, they do a very strange thing uh, on this thing. It's a very long opening credits run did you notice this it's like 12 minutes long well i mean yeah with, with breaks it's, yeah because they always yeah. have they have these breaks and it's like this interminable uh cutting back to frames of of names but it's all done over zero mustel uh you know i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna be generous here and call it producing he's producing <laughs> and i'm saying that because i sort of want what he does to be what you do because <laughs> i know that you are also a producer i feel like those two things <laughs> need to line up somehow he's redefining the role and uh, so you Certainly have something new to aspire that. to yes yes hold me touch me andy hold me touch me. hold me touch me i love that she's actually credited as hold me touch me hold me touch me yeah no i these guys are really terrible producers. First of all, like the the rates that they're giving their investors, it's it's insane. Like 25%, 20%, 50%, 100%. Who does that? And so it has up to 25,000% of the profits. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> that's what they call fraud. Yeah. yeah he's a bad <laughs> producer. But even before, what, oh yeah, even before he met Leo, he was just a bad producer. Oh. Yes, he was a bad producer all the way out, and that's that ends up being uh, one of the delightfully funny sort of jokes at the end too, when <laughs> they're actually in prison and he's still defrauding the prisoners for their own production. He right. now owns twenty five percent, twenty five percent. The warden he owns fifty percent. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was really great. So, no, okay. That's good. Um, you but, said it. These are despicable characters, and yet we fall in love with them very quickly. Yeah. They're, and I think a lot of that comes from the casting, you know, finding Zero Mostel and, and Gene Wilder to play these, these characters makes um makes characters that you can find a connection to uh, a lot easier i mean they had both been well uh, zero mustel had been a a familiar face to people you know he had already been around and uh was popular and uh i mean he had been doing everything from what like uh it's, it's a little more comic uh but serious like fiddler on the roof uh playing tevia and right. he did a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which is uh, I that is like the one other role that I definitely remember him from. I, it's like I was trying to think of films that I had seen him in. And I feel like those, uh, this and that, maybe the only two. Oh, and he was in the Hot Rock, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and just a few other. I mean, he was in plenty of other things, but a few others that I'd seen. Um, but not much. But um, he's he's a real cranky cranky bastard in this and um but there's something about the way he plays it that that sleaze um that i end up finding it real um 
interesting warmth to. And I, I found that really interesting. And I think a lot of that also comes from the relationship that he develops with Leo as he meets Leo. And especially in the moment when Leo goes into hysterics and has that just wildly awesome fit, which was just brilliant. And the when Zero has to sit down at the desk and he has to like smile and yes, yeah, <laughs> it's like oh that helps that really helps. Like that was <laughs> that was just like comedy gold right there. Just the yes. way that these two played off of each other was perfect. Well, and you know they get away with they get away with some things because of the kind of comedy that this is, right? That um, that I I think are sort of these rules are sort of limited to this kind of comedy. These characters like they don't change. Right. There's no emotional growth over the course of this. This is just a straight up uh, comic action beat movie uh, where we, we don't necessarily learn that much about them that we care about. We're just what we see in the beginning, in that opening scene, when we when we meet them, we just get to experience them going through different scenarios through the course of this movie and enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's true. Um I feel like there might be a little growth in Leo's character over the course of the story. He, you know, he kind of has the growth, um, is able to kind of stand up in court and speak. I thought that showed an interesting side of him that uh, was nice to see. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it is pretty much kind of a, a comedy setup type of film. And it certainly is something Mel Brooks uh, really knows how to do i think that's something that uh, you know i mean here's a guy who i mean really kind of grew up in the industry uh, as a as a kid he was already working with the the early tv shows like your show of shows with buck henry and mm-hmm. um uh, well he and buck henry created get smart and i i think that he's just one of those guys that uh gets it as far as creating those those comedy beats and what i found interesting revisiting this film is it wasn't just the comedy beats but there were some just small as a first-time filmmaker there were some like small subtle camera things that he chose to do that i was like you know that's actually a pretty creative way to shoot the scene and I like what? Like what? What's your give me a give me a highlight? An example for me is um, when, and this is just the one that's coming to my mind when they're in the bar and they have found out that the audience actually loves the play instead of hates the play, and uh, you have Gene Wilder who pulls his blanket out and starts <laughs> caressing his blanket. <laughs> And then you get this shot of uh, Max Bialystok as he comes over to the jukebox. But the shot is low from through the jukebox glass, and you kind of see him as he kind of plants his face on the glass of the jukebox. And I was like, that's kind of a creative angle that he's doing there. It's kind of fun. It's a, it's a much, it gives it variety. And that's something that I found throughout the film. For a first-time filmmaker, this is a guy who actually was okay with just doing, and they're not huge, they're not big, they're not like mind-bogglingly um, creative uh, like Martin Scorsese or uh, Paul Thomas Anderson or Edgar Wright playing with their cameras, but there were there were enough to kind of make me notice and go, this guy is a director. He's doing interesting things here, and he does it in in the use of comedy. I think he does it exceptionally well. The, and I'm thinking about "Hold Me, Touch Me" in the very sort of first sequence. Um, she comes in and and he falls and lands on the on their on his little 
table, right? The living room yep. table that he has there and he crushes it. And then we have a long lingering shot right on him on the floor as he's sort of suffering and she disappears and we don't know where she went. And then we hear her voice. She's sort of cooing for him and he turns over and gets on his knees and starts wagging his butt like a dog. And <laughs> the next shot we cut to we're over her, but we're really close, like right over her stomach. And she's this is a 90 year old woman laying down like prone on the desk. And right. uh, as as the camera pulls back and we see zero or Max kind of wagging his way toward her. And then we have this reveal of this 90 year old woman in this amazingly sexual position waiting for him to take her on this desk. Uh, it's it, it's hard not to just to to belly laugh at this stuff, and it's all it's that combination of of placement, use, and uh, and and you know the characters that he's shooting that I think just make it really smart. I think it's a I think it's great. Yeah, I I agree, definitely agree. I'm so glad you turned around on this. So <laughs> glad. Uh, we got a little bit of fourth wall breakage, but not much. It wasn't egregious. No, and it's it's something that I think uh, works well in comedy, and and I think because of that, it's this is the type of film where you I, I wouldn't say you expect to see it, but when it pops up, you're like, oh, okay, of course, it's a natural place to do it. And, you know, the I think it's just a little look when uh, right after uh, Leo's breakdown, where Max looks at the camera, and go, this guy needs to be locked up, right? Uh, something like that, and you know, it's just it's a very simple thing, but. I think that the um, the beautiful act of that fourth wall breaking, which came from stage because a you know, character could turn and talk to the audience, I, I think it allows for the humor and it, it just it amps it up a little bit more. So I, I definitely appreciated that. And, I, you know, I, well, I don't know if it's fair to say that it's something from the era um, because I feel like it's something that just really happens whenever filmmakers need it to happen. There yeah. is this great. This is great shot, uh, right again in that holy touch me sequence after he's done with the the dog and he's I, the the camera is really close on zero, kind of in the left of the frame and she's over his shoulder. Do you remember the shot that I'm talking about? It's very very close. It it reminds me of like Brazil, like it's one of those like super wide, super close, almost kind of a surveillance look to it, and it. Uh, it's hard to describe what I, I'm imagining is going on, but she's behind him and there's something going on with her hands and he's doing something with his face and it just doesn't look look great. It looks, you know, like she's she's doing something. And I, <laughs> that's kind of always what's been in my mind, right? I, that that there's something going on and, or, and they're just great comic actors. And then <laughs> and then I listened to the to the interview with uh, Mel Brooks on this, uh, talking specifically about Estelle Winwood, who played that character, and and said that Zero would come to him and say, "You have to, you have to get her out of here. She keeps poking <laughs> me in unmentionable places. She's just incorrigible." And that it makes that whole opening sequence before we actually meet Leo uh, so much the better for me. She well, was really a dirty old lady. And I think that he said, you know, they had been casting for like 70 to 75 year old ladies and yeah. she came in for the audition, but she was actually like 90. Yeah. She and, lied about her age. Yeah, <laughs> and, and she, but she still is very spry and, and uh, does a great job. <laughs> sort of stuff. She is very fun. She, uh, yeah. she's great in the role 
And uh, yeah, I just, I, I loved having her, <laughs> like, seeing her climb up on top of him on the couch. And this is a, a guy who he had, I guess he had injured his leg like a year before the, uh, um, the production on a bus accident. And so he had a really bad leg that he, um, he uh, covered really well. You'd never guess it. Again, back on the style, though, before we get too far out of this, uh, I, I think it would be it feels very much like a staged production for most of this. Right. We're either in the theater or we're in his uh, studio uh, or in the stairwell. You know, there are a couple of, but but it feels very much like a, a staged kind of a thing. There's a kind of a deep proscenium uh, look at it. And then we have these moments where they leave. They go outside and it feels remarkably cinematic. Well, and I know it was kind of a low-ish budget production, um, and and uh, they did film quite a bit of on stage, um, um, but they tried to get out onto locations as much as they could, and it really does help, and it opens the picture up when they go to the park and they're walking around, that beautiful scene when um, they're at the fountain, when Leo commits to doing this um, this crime with, with uh, Max. Um, just all of those moments really add a lot to it. And even some of the stuff outside the theater, uh, is outside the theater, even if it, uh, still looks kind of stagey, but, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think they managed to pull it off, uh, pretty well, um, keeping it looking nice. But then again, also that look kind of works for that sixties musical, type of of storytelling you know because it was definitely a decade of musicals and having this coming in uh in the 60s i think reflects that a little bit that this is a decade of the musical and here is this musical about hitler and uh it, it just kind of gives it that sense um but also gives you uh, quite a bit of that 60s style and everything you get some great 60s characters in here uh throughout but yeah the look of it i think i i attribute a lot of that to that 60s musical style which obviously was popular at the time and then we have to talk a little bit about um ula ula uh ula is the one we have the whole stable of old ladies uh, we'll call we'll call them his production partners, and then we have Ula, who is the the secretary and played by Lee Meredith. Uh, and I, what's her name is ridiculous. Ula Inge Hansen Benson Janssen Talen Halen Sweden Swanson Bloom. <laughs> See, I knew you would know. So I'm that. assuming that she must have married Leo Bloom at some she point. She eventually cause... married Leo Bloom, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ula Inge Hansen Benson Janssen Talen Halen Sweden Swanson Bloom. So Love if there's it. anything that we're going to tie back to what feels very 60s to me about this, what dates this movie, it's going to be Ula, Ula Dance. I was watching this and it is, it does date it a little bit, um, but it did make me ask, where does this whole stereotype of like this dingy Swedish uh, blonde bombshell come from? And I don't think it came from this film. I feel like this film is playing up that stereotype. Um, so it makes me wonder where did that kind of idea come from? It uh, it's it was intriguing to me, um, even if I found it a little um, dated. But uh, you know, it, it but it didn't bug me. Same thing with like the way that they they play up the uh, director and his roommate. Um, you know, I I think that the gayness of those characters 
is uh, in a way it ended up just being uh, kind of just part of the, you know, over the top nature of everything in the comedy. I don't know where it where the stereotype comes from, but boy, it doesn't take long for you to sort of find it with a couple of quick Google searches. And, uh, the you know, the the Swedes, the Swedish sort of cultural attitude. Uh, when you look at these, I'm on a Swedish tourist bureau uh, blog right now. Uh, and I, all I did was search for Swedish sex stereotype. And that's a that can be a dark path. Um, <laughs> yes. So I, I took the light path. Uh, but all it says here is Swedes are generally sexually liberated. They're practical people. And this extends to sex. They see nothing wrong with having sex and are happy to openly say they really enjoy it. They switch partners with little guilt and see sex as a natural part of life. So stereotype. Yes. Also true. so there we go we've just learned everything we need to know about that and maybe that's where uh mel brooks got his uh his information the blogs in (laughs) right 68 yeah the 60s blogs i can only imagine yeah well it's uh it it is interesting uh i think it it works it all works in context of the comedy and it plays into that and i i guess in the end i'm okay with ula i'm okay with uh you know just all of the franz liebkind with lsd with with uh um uh roger debris and carmen uh, because it all ends up for me falling into kind of the over the top nature of what brooks is doing with the comedy here yeah you know to hear brooks talk about it you know well maybe we should we should talk a little bit more about getting it made but um i you know his his statement on how he handles because we we haven't talked about the uh franz yet and and how he handles dealing with nazism in this in, in this story um it it's all about taking this authoritarian regime the uh, the third reich and lampooning it and he is very clear about you know his intentions here about you know writing something that allows us to overtly laugh at and and thereby take down um you know any power that this overtly negative uh historical experience has in our lives like he's he is super intentional this is not a thing that you know where we we talk about the movies that these filmmakers make and they're just sort of surprised that they that this message was in here no this is the uh, mel brooks is is on the record that this is what he tries to do. Well, and it's funny because at the time, a lot of people didn't see it that way. Like he really had to push that. And they didn't get the joke. They didn't get the joke. But it it makes me wonder if it it was so close where it's like too soon type of thing, you know? Yeah. And I think he, he was probably pushing the, the boundaries as far as the too soon element and society some people in society were saying you know we're not ready for that it was too fresh too many people died we can't just turn it into a joke um and i really i i can see it both ways i i think mm-hmm. if you're that if it's that fresh it can still hurt um but i definitely agree with mel brooks that this whole idea of of um if you just if you just get up i i think he, here's a quote that i found um, I was never crazy about Hitler. If you stand on a soapbox and trade rhetoric with a dictator, you never win. That's what they do so well. They seduce people. But if you ridicule them, bring them down with laps, laughter, they can't win. You show how crazy they are. Right. And I, I 100% agree with that. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, can still, it, I can still get it, though. 
it it wasn't in that passage, but the the thing that stuck with me hearing him talk about it was uh, was the same sentiment to what you just read. And then he says, you know, these the, these people when you go into the debate with the the authoritarian, they were born to do that. Yeah. You will always lose because they were born to do what they do. You have to step away and and right. take them down a notch by laughing at them. Yeah. Uh, and I I thought that was that's a you know a, again a really insightful for uh, you know and shows kind of his. Uh, you know, whatever you think of the rest of his movies, right? He has, he does have a general brilliance about, you know, his, his the incisiveness of his comedy, as broad as it is. You know, the original title was actually "Springtime for Hitler," and he came up with that title as a joke um, earlier in his career, and then he uh, he had actually worked for a producer. That was a lot like Max and who would actually sleep with these older women to get the funding um, and uh, and uh, used the money to kind of create their lavish lifestyle while they made unsuccessful plays. And it became kind of the backstory. And he's like, one day I'm going to write this guy into a script. And sure enough, he did. Now, he started as a novel. Uh, he had a friend read it. And they're like, there's way too much dialogue. There's there's no, not enough story here. And so it's a play. And so then he started working on it as a play. And he had some some friends who were in in uh, the play industry look at it. And they're like, it's it's they're, you're changing the scenes way too many times. There's no way this can be a play. This is a, a movie script. <laughs> and and so he's like, OK. And so he he kind of uh, started shopping it around trying to find someone to buy it. But nobody was interested because the title Springtime for Hitler was just something that they said was just tasteless. Uh, although I think I think he said Universal said if the if he changed it to Springtime for Mussolini, then they'd be interested. <laughs> A lesser, <laughs> right. a lesser authoritarian. <laughs> right. Um, he finally ended up meeting with an old uh, friend of his, Sidney Glazier, who um, really loved it and wanted to make it. And he ended up finding the funding and uh, it got the distribution through Joseph, Joseph Levine. And uh, but Levine is the one who actually said, we just can't release it when it's called Springtime for Hitler. You have to change the name. And so that's the finally the impetus that that Brooks needed to change it, and he named it the producers, um, which he thought was hilarious because he's like these guys are anything but producers. Um, but uh, and then he and they're like, well, who, now you got to find a director, and he's like, well, I I, I want to direct it. And Levine was like, I don't know, like why would I hire you to direct it? You haven't directed anything before. And he's just like, look, I'm the writer. I know this from top to bottom. I've seen the entire thing in my head for years now because of the because I wrote it. If if you hire somebody else to do it, they're not going to see it. It's going to take longer. So by hiring me, you're actually going to be saving money because we'll get it done faster. And uh, he bought the logic and hired him. And uh, so that was how he got his first directing gig. Um, now, as far as casting it, he always wanted Zero Mostel in the lead. And so um, he tried to get to Mostel, but uh, his agent wouldn't show it to him. And so um, he sent it to Mostel's wife, who loved it. And even though when Zero finally read it, he didn't like it at all, um, his wife pushed him to take it. So she ended up being the reason that we got Zero Mostel in it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Gene Wilder, the interesting thing with that is um, he was actually in a play with uh, with Mel Brooks's, at the time, it was still his girlfriend, Anne Bancroft. They were in a play together, and 
he was getting very frustrated because he had a smaller part and, and it is a serious play, but everybody was always laughing at at him. And he would talk to Mel in the back. He's just like, gosh, why is everyone laughing at me? And because and, and Mel would say, it's because you're a funny guy. You you make people <laughs> laugh. That's what you're born to do. Um, and so after um they reached out to Peter Sellers to play Leo, and that didn't happen. He uh, remembered Gene, and he's like, I'll get in touch with him and, and cast him. So he brought him on board. And then uh, from there, it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> but the other interesting casting element was that he knew Dustin Hoffman, like they lived on the same street together. And actually, he um, cast uh, Dustin Hoffman as Franz Liebkind. And Dustin, this according to Mel Brooks, this was like the night before they were supposed to shoot. Um, he said he heard pebbles on his window and he went to his window and he opened it up and it's Dustin. He's like, Mel, I have to talk to you. And so Mel came down to the street and and Dustin said, I have to, um, you have to let me out of, of being in your movie because I have an audition tomorrow um, in LA for The Graduate. And uh, he's, a, and Mel was just like, well, but you're, you're in the film. We start shooting tomorrow. And he's like, you have to let me do this. This is my chance. And, um, he was, and, and plus, I mean, it starred Mel's, um, by this point they were married. So his wife Anne Bancroft and he, Mel was convinced that Dustin wouldn't get the part. So he's like, <laughs> all right, fine. You can go audition. And then of course, Hoffman called that next day saying he got the part. And so then he had to uh, scramble and get uh, Kenneth Mars cast for the role. I uh, Kenneth Mars is just fantastic. Oh, he's so uh, funny, believably nuts. Yes, uh, well, I can't. I can't picture Hoffman in the role. I just can't picture it. No, Kenneth Mars is perfect for the role, and I guess he he got it in his head that to really kind of stay in character, he he needed to bring his outfit home every night and he'd sleep in it and he was in it like for the duration and he, and he said it was ripe by the time they got to the end it was just a, a ripe ripe outfit oh, so gross <laughs> but he i guess it helped him stay in character whatever oh, it takes gross. oh yeah. yes yeah uh there's a there was a funny wilder story meeting zero because he'd never met zero and this this delights me uh the the first time you know brooks comes to him you know three years after they initially approached him to to take the part of leo bloom uh and wilder hearing nothing uh door opens and there's there's uh brooks and he says you got it but i gotta you gotta come meet zero i can't just cast you i mean i i I, you gotta meet zero he's gotta he he wants to have a, a say so they go to meet zero and uh, Wilder says, I, I put out my hand to shake his hand and he comes to me, he pushes the hand out of the way and he grabs me and kisses me and kissed me on the lips. And <laughs> that was it. Like all the like, any anxiety was just gone. Uh, and uh, uh, I get that. I get that. That sounds like a zero must have kind of a thing to do. I feel like I'm getting a picture of who this guy is. Uh, I, I just love it. So funny. Just love it. So, so funny. funny. You didn't say anything about Dick Sean. As far as uh, getting cast, you mean? He was he was the one that he that yeah. uh, he'd always had in his head. To yeah, I think role. he was he was the first pick. Yeah. Um. And uh, and I think what he actually said to Mel was he's like uh, I'll take it. I, I like the part, and I don't have any work right now. <laughs> so <laughs> so sure. <laughs> 
Uh, it's good. It's good. All right. So who who are we missing? Oh, then there's this whole other thing with uh, Roger Debris and Carmen Gia. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> this whole other little thing is where the the you know Bialystok and Bloom have to go sell it. They have to go get this director, Roger Debris, play, played by Christopher Hewitt, and uh, his his assistant Carmen Gia, played by Andreas Butsinas, and. Uh, they are a, a very funny pair. Uh, what do you think? Too far? Comic Again, it, it ends up fitting within the context of the story. Like I end up really enjoying it because I I I, I think it amps up the comedy, and so uh, it, I mean it's definitely a, uh, a quite a big gay character that Christopher Hewitt's playing. But it ends up being very funny when he comes out from behind that little dressing screen and he's completely decked out in a in a dress. And you and get he's this, a giant, and he's, he's huge. a very large, Hewitt tall man. Is a, is a very big man. Yeah, and it, it just ends up being so funny, and he plays it so well. And uh, I don't know, for me, what I loved so much is that that's Mr. Belvedere right there. I, I just, <laughs> I cracked up so much when I saw him uh, uh, pop up in here. And, uh, I, you know, I had forgotten that he's in the Lavender Hill mob. Yes. I think that uh, he's he's great here. And it's it is one. Of, it's a small part. He's only in like three scenes. Right. When they yeah. when they interview him, when he's casting and then at the end when he comes in and screams rape <laughs> weird that was a little uh, weird yes yeah that was weird uh, you know i have to admit like i remembered the name uh mr belvedere obviously i watched the show uh it is of an era that i was like <laughs> watching tv uh oh, yes. and and yet i couldn't i couldn't picture it i couldn't picture dubois christopher hewitt as mr velvet and now i'm looking at them practically side by side and they look like different men. <laughs> that is remarkable to me. Maybe the eyes are the same, but it's like his whole skull got wider. Well, he's older. He's got the mustache. And, yeah. you know, it's 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 different. But I, I just, I loved Mr. Belvedere. And now it always perpetually reminds me of this really wacky, creepy uh, Saturday Night Live sketch that Tom Hanks was in where he, they go to the Mr. Belvedere um, fan club meeting. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was called The Guy Who Played Mr. Belvedere <laughs> Fan Club. <laughs> I never saw it. Oh, well, we need to see it. if we, we can put it in the show you. notes. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> there's this really creepy bit where um, Phil Hartman plays, um, I don't know, he's just a really creepy guy, but he's just like, he wants to tear the skin to wear the skin where the skin becomes the key or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What? Yeah, it was really funny. So that anyway, we have to find that sketch and uh and put it in the show notes because everybody should see it. <laughs> okay. Uh all right. I'll look for it. Anyway, I love Christopher Hewitt and I end up being okay with the character even though uh some of it's a little over the top. Yeah. It's made better when you see interviews with, you know, with these guys who and who played the characters and they love the characters, you know. I mean, clearly they had a great time, especially Andreas Vucinas, who said when he was playing the character, he thought he was going to have to finish the film and then move, leave the country. Like it was going to be just <laughs> a horrible thing. Uh, but uh, it turned out to be really quite brilliant. Yes. Uh, fun to see Bill Hickey in here. That's what I was going to say. We should mention that uh, that uh, William Hickey is the drunk in the bar. And uh, 
Gosh, we've talked about him a couple times on the show, right? Yeah, but but where was that? We talked about him in Pritzi's honor. We did, we did, and and not yet about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which we'll <laughs> we'll get to. Oh, we'll get to it. All right. So all of the people out of the way. Now we've got to talk about the musical numbers. And 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 tying into the musical number, we do have to. Speaking of um, uh, actors, we do just need to mention yes. that Mel Brooks has his own little cameo as the voice in the Springtime for Hitler song. He does a little can- uncredited cameo, uh, doing the line. Uh, don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. Um, because he just didn't think the actor could ever hit the line right and never got it as big and broad and funny as he wanted. So he dubbed it. <laughs> and what's great about that is it became almost its own gag because then he also dubs it on in every stage performance and in uh, what we'll be talking about next week. I love it so much. I love the <laughs> fact that it ran on Broadway too, and that the actor yeah. just did it. It threw two, from like what did it run from two thousand one to two thousand seven or something, right? And uh, yes, and that was always Mel Brooks. What a great, what a le- what a legacy! Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> don't be absolutely. stupid, be a smarty. Come enjoy the Nazi party. Oh, so good, so oh. good. So, what did you think of the the big musical numbers? As a fan of you know scores and music, I know this probably I... hit you hit you in the feels. It's brilliant. It really is brilliant. And what's funny about it is he told his composer, John Morris, I need you to write the biggest, like, uh, craziest, most awful musical number that you can. And he also told his, uh, the choreographer to do that. Everybody, production design, this has to be the gaudiest, most awful production uh, musical number that we've done. Um and I think it works really brilliantly. And it's it's just fantastic to see all the pieces come together, whether it's the the pretzel outfits or the 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 uh, beer outfits, whatever it is that that fits, it just makes so much sense and it works so well in context of it. And I may as well throw this in here now, Pete, because you brought it up. So okay. I'm gonna blame you. Um I think this song is brilliant and one of the most memorable songs of uh of films in 1968 and looking at the musical uh nominations for best song in uh in the year um oh we're doing this we're we're, we're doing we're this jumping, right now we're jumping into this we we don't have to do all the awards right now but I am jumping into this because I need to discuss this with you Pete okay Two weeks ago, we talked about the windmills of your mind winning for Mm -hmm. best song from the Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, Michelle Legrand, Alan Bergman, and Marilyn Bergman. It's a nice song. It works really well. It's an earworm. It sticks in your head and it doesn't let go. And I really like it. I think it's a a fun song. We looked at the list of songs, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, For Love of Ivy, um, which is a Quincy Jones song from the um, movie For Love of Ivy, and Funny Girl, and Star from the movie star. Mm-hmm. Um, I have now listened to all of these. I also listened to Buona Sera, Mrs. Campbell, which I mentioned mm-hmm. um, was nominated for best song at the Golden Globes. Okay. I still of the, these, I would pick Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but why the hell is springtime for Hitler not nominated? <laughs> because it is better than, than three fifths the rest of these of songs. Those. <laughs> yeah. 
And it should have won. I really think that it set out to do something very specific for the movie, and it did a brilliant job doing it. And while I love Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and think there's something magical about what the Sherman Brothers did with that song, this song is doing so much more because it's also satirizing uh, just the, the whole thing. And I just think it's a brilliant piece of, of musical writing. And I don't think people got that at the time, but I do think that they got it when it came to the, uh, the musical. I'm I'm not going to argue uh, the point with you because I think you're right. I think it's uh, the, uh, on the strength of the song. I wonder if it just it, it was bad timing culturally for a song like this to win. Oh, oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a huge part of it. There's no way yeah. that people were going to nominate a song called Springtime for Hitler. Right. I just don't think that would have happened. <laughs> Uh, if like the, the movie, they retitled it to be something else and then it just mm-hmm. happened to be singing about springtime for Hitler, maybe right. it would have been nominated. But the fact that it's called springtime for Hitler, I don't think you want to have a song labeled on IMDb in 2018 that says springtime for Hitler winner, you know? Yeah. I, I yeah. Think people it'd it'd would... be hard to, hard to print that on the, uh, on the statue. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Uh, but but I do think you're right. And I think what, it, you know, the the gift of the comedy of the song is that it's cutting. It is so cutting. It's satire is so cutting. You know, um, come on, Germans, go into your dance. And, and they do the goose step dance. I mean, it's just perfection for what it's trying to accomplish. And, and it's interesting because it's such a whole production inside of the film, the producers, right? Like the producers has its own sort of resonance. And then this inside of it and the way the audiences react to it the way they all start to storm out uh and and then come back in as soon as they meet lsd as hitler has its own uh sort of meta narrative going on in here and i really like it i like the way it's i find it um really moving not just funny uh in in how it uh how it works and and that there's this capitalist narrative at the end of it too that they uh that they ended up being successful and thereby failed. Like right. <laughs> they screw up at every turn. And, and I just, uh, I, I think the last third, uh, the third act of this movie um, just really locks in, in place. Now the thing, the criticism that for those that I've watched the movie with, the criticism is when, you know, uh, Franz comes back and uh, with the gun and, and starts trying to shoot Bialystok and bloom and, and goes on his little rampage. Uh, how did that, hit you and it's a criticism because um uh, again like through modernized uh, type of yeah, criticism yeah just, yeah i think it's modern modernized criticism but you can say the same thing in the obviously in the musical and the play uh, we'll talk about it again yeah, yeah, next week which i haven't seen yet so right um i you know i i don't have a problem with it i i think that it okay. makes sense for the character i mean he's kind of this this crazy um nazi secretly living in new york city and uh, trying to play normal but i think he kind of hits this breaking point and so i think it makes perfect sense i don't have any problem with the fact that he kind of resorts to that for some reason for me i don't have a problem with it in this film either and yet i and it's been probably a year since i've watched the 2005 i'm i am i'm eager to hear your stance on it there's something about just the modern production value uh, that i think makes it, uh, it 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 hits me differently in the remake 
Oh, interesting. Uh, so okay. it's cur- I'm curious. In this one, I didn't have a problem with it. And in fact, I think he's the the way they interject the comedy uh, throughout, you know, the handing of the gun and the he's, you know, he's, the way he plays some of his um, his distractions. It's like this sort of ADHD rampage. <laughs> You know, he's, yeah. he's so into his own into his own gestalt that uh, uh, that they they have a lot of really wonderful comic beats that to, to play in the sequence. It's really worth watching. I think that this is one of those films, those Mel Brooks films, that if I have any criticism of a Mel Brooks film, it's usually that the third act just deflates, and we already got all the jokes. And right. in the producers, I don't have that criticism. I feel like it, I'm still laughing uh, as the credits roll at the end. Well, it's a taut film. I mean, it's only ninety minutes, barely and it moves along at a, at a rapid pace and by the time we get to that third act and the show is over i mean i was a little worried i'm like okay is it going to just completely fall apart here but you move through it so quickly like all of the stuff when when fritz comes and tries to kill them and then they blow up the theater and then the whole courtroom scene it, it just it it went so fast that i never felt like it was bogging down right and that's uh, that's a credit to Brooks's writing and to the editing. I think that they just they they streamlined this to just keep the comedy as tight as possible. You want to jump into talking a little bit more about the sequels remakes? Well, we uh, as uh, we've alluded to, this does uh, get its chance finally to become a theater musical. Was this the first real big like movie adaptation? Uh, for a musical? Well, I, I don't know the first, but Andy, if you start searching on this, I mean, Wikipedia alone has 200, 200 musicals that were based originally on films, and you will be surprised. I guarantee you will be surprised when you <laughs> when you look, look at this list. It is That's a, a rabbit hole. I, I don't think list. I want to yeah. fall down. We, we don't. We don't want to go down that road. Uh, we we could we could find it. Uh, but my my guess is the first one is going to be Two Hearts in Walt's Time. The film was in 1934, uh, and the musical was. Yeah, I know. I see now. I thought I had that right handy. So, but anyway, I I, I think that that might be the one, but I, I'm not sure. So. Well, and so it's clearly a thing. It's a thing. Oh, it's this, a thing. This took full advantage of that. And and you know, it's it it worked well for Mel because uh his career as a, a film director was certainly um falling by the wayside. I think that his his quality uh was steadily declining after Spaceballs. He did Life Stinks, Robin Hood Met in Tights, which some people love, and then Dracula yeah. Dead and Loving It, which I don't know if anybody loves. That was 95, and that was his last film that he directed. And it wasn't until this that really kind of all of a sudden turned into something in 2001 that it kind of put him on the map as this as this Broadway guy. And uh, this um, musical opened April 19th, 2001, and it ran until April 22nd, 2007 on Broadway. 2,500 performances nominated for 15 Tonys and it won 12 of them only losing to itself which is wow for three of the acting because because matthew broderick lost to nathan lane and then two of the other featured actors lost to a third featured actor so it is amazing it's amazing to me that it uh, uh that uh, it was received so well and i think that goes to show that when mel wrote this um i mean obviously it it was received um, well enough, 
Um, but it's something that grew in popularity, and it, it seems like he almost wrote it too early because by the time um, it hit in 2001, it was just like people were ripe. Uh, the time was ripe for it. People weren't yeah. ripe. The time people, was ripe. No, the time was ripe and ripe. People were ready and because the time ready. was ripe. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about other awards just for the film? Yeah, the movie did get uh, three wins and five other nominations. At the Oscars, It uh, Mel won Best Original Screenplay. He was really surprised, wasn't ready, didn't have a speech because he was convinced he wasn't going to win, especially up against some of the films that uh, that he beat, like 2001, which I may disagree with slightly still, um, even though I like this now. <laughs> but um, Gene Wilder was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but he lost to Jack Albertson for the film The Subject Was Roses. Never seen and, it. And uh, I haven't either, but Jack Albertson, he's, uh, he was in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with uh, Gene Wilder a few years later. Yeah. Um, over at the Golden Globes, uh, Zero Mostel was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, but he lost to Ron Moody in Oliver, which we'll be talking about in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, Mel Brooks was nominated there for Best Original Screenplay, but he lost to Sterling Siliphant for Charlie. And then in 1996, the film was put on the National Film Registry. So it's a very popular film. Oh, and then I was going to say at the, at the WGA, um, they nominated it for Best Written American Original Screenplay, which Brooks won for, and Best Written American Comedy it was only nominated. It lost to The Odd Couple. Hmm. So what do you, you think go. about that? The Odd Couple? You know, I saw that movie so long ago, I don't remember it well enough. I I probably don't either, but I, I my memory of it is this is it's in good company if it's competing against the odd couple straight across. I I don't know on any given day I could say either one. Yeah, I'd have to watch it again because I don't yeah. remember liking it, but I didn't remember liking this one either. So oh, the odd couple, Andy, you're pra you practically. I'm sorry, you are the odd couple. <laughs> I am. I don't know how you should, maybe that's why you didn't like it. It cut a little too close to the bone. <laughs> So I am the odd couple. Are you saying I'm split personalities? No, I'm saying you're definitely one of them. Or you are you one of the? Are you again. the other one? <laughs> I'm saying maybe we should put that movie on the show. We could find out. We could discern <laughs> how to do at the box office. Uh, well, Mel managed to get a budget of nine hundred forty-one thousand dollars for his first film, which is about six point eight million in today's dollars. The movie did have its dismal premiere, which I told you about, on November 22nd, 1967 in Pittsburgh. As I said, it took a while, but he finally convinced them to uh, try again. And with that letter from Peter Sellers, March 68, they had the other premiere in New York. It was received better. It still, for some reason, took until November 10th, 1968 for it to actually be released to a wide audience. Um, it was released opposite Monkey's um, Head. I don't know if you've ever seen that wackadoo movie but that's when no. that came out and the shoes of the fisherman the movie that we talked about uh not knowing anything about um <laughs> this movie went on to make 1.6 million or 11.5 million in today's dollars that gives them the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of fifty-four thousand dollars, which is a solid start for brooks what obviously worked better for him however is the longevity of the film and its story it is a great film and story so glad uh, that we visited this film in particular can't wait for next uh, week but for now andy i think i think we should try to rank it oh i think it's time you're right 
Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see the list of movies that we have talked about on this show. If you swipe over in show notes or you're listening on the website and you click the word flick chart, it'll take you straight to this movie in the flick chart catalog. You can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up to ours. All right. First up, we have the producers or Fat City. I will say the producers. I say the producers. Top half. Top the half. producers or Raise the Red Lantern. Mm, I gotta go raise the Red Lantern. Okay, I'm gonna go the producers and just uh, roll with it. Let's just see okay. what happens. All right. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three paper. Rock. All right. Okay. I All feel right. okay with that. All right. All right, next up, we have the producers or Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, I have to go oh, Scott Pilgrim. no, Scott Pilgrim. All right, the producers are the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going with the good, the bad, and the ugly. We need some Leone redemption. <laughs> yeah, okay. Good, the bad, you're right. Good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> the producers or my neighbor Totoro, I'd go with Totoro. Uh, I'm going to go with the producers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here we go. One. One. Two, Two, three, scissors, scissors. paper, scissors. The producers takes it. All right. The producers or All About Eve. I'm definitely going with All About Eve. The producers. Oh. Oh, snap. No, 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 no. No, I'll take it back. I will also go with All About Eve. Okay. (laughs) The producers or The Philadelphia Story. I will go with The Philadelphia Story. I'll definitely go with The Producers. Wow. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. No. And it's even a definite. One, One two, two, three, paper. Oh, mm. Any questions? <laughs> the producers or the Godfather part D. I'll say the Godfather part D. I'll also say the Godfather part D. Well, that lands the producers at spot 80. On our chart, eighty out of three hundred eighty-one movies on our flick chart. That's pretty, pretty good. It's a pretty good spot, higher than I would have put it. But uh, you were kind of all, "Oh, I'm in love with this movie." So, oh, oh, shove it, <laughs> shove it. How did it do on your uh, your list, Prince Andrew? Well, Pete, as you know, I didn't like this movie initially. My initial ranking of this movie was at spot 3,021 out of 4,060. So it was pretty far down my ranking. That's ridiculous. And I was like, you know, I'm going to, to be fair, now that I've rewatched it and I enjoyed it, I'm going to re-rank it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Because one should. Yes. And so it came in at 947. And that lands it at a 77%, which is a pretty healthy jump, I would say. Wow. Wow. Okay. Big shot. I ended up with mine at 297 out of 1051, which is a 72, a mere 72. Wow. Yes. You have. And I think that you still liked it more than me. So that's funny. I did. And so if I'm to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, the star rating that Flickchart says I should use is three and a half stars. I find that uh, a tragedy. I will not be going with three and a half stars i will be going with more of the stars i know it's a heart so we're going to lock that in but is it a five star heart or a four and a half star heart that's the real question. oh my oh my yeah well i don't know which is it you tell me i can't tell you which which star it is for you i feel like you often do <laughs> and so 
but I believe that I'm going to go with a, uh, I mean, in terms of comedy experience, this is uh, top class for me. So I feel like you're saying it's five star for you. Ugh. Do you have quibbles? <laughs> I have some quibbles. But see, the but way quibbles, quibbles work you in your universe, past. they're quibbles that you throw away. It doesn't matter. It should be five star with a thousand quibbles. <laughs> you can I'm going to give it a five quibbles. star, Annie. It's okay. a five star and a heart. Don't I be, laugh don't hard be a, enough. Don't be afraid of in. that. I'm a little afraid of it. I'm timid. I can tell you are. I'm hysterical. If you're, if you're timid I'm of wet it, you're hysterical. And I'm hysterical. And I'm, <laughs> I'm in pain. pain. I'm, I'm wet. wet and I'm hysterical. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm at four stars. Four stars and the like, which I'm really happy with because I probably would have said it was one and a half before. But now uh, four and a like, and I feel really good about that. Well, here's the other thing. That the other, my other five-star heart uh, Mel Brooks movie is Young Frankenstein and I am like you I'm very interested in going back to my other experiences with uh, Mel Brooks movies because I have not seen enough of them I've seen Blazing Saddles didn't didn't date well that that does hard to watch uh, now um, Young Frankenstein I thought that movie. one was supposed to be easier to watch now I, I had a I just wasn't as funny to me I just okay. didn't. I wanted it to be much funnier than it was. There are sure. bits. Young okay. Frankenstein absolutely holds up for me. Uh, silent movie I've only seen once. I hardly remember what it was about. High anxiety, same thing. History of the World Part One is the one I'm most eager to watch again because that's the one that I feel like is that that could be my other five star and a heart. And you know, I know I, I feel like Spaceballs, Life Stinks, Robin Hood, Dracula. For me, those are in the same category. I know. Spaceballs is high and mighty for you, but it's always been kind of eh. She doesn't look druish. Eh. <laughs> Schwartz. I, uh, <laughs> they've gone plaid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny right now. It's less funny in the movie when that happens. Oh, I don't know. I think it's great. Um, it, it, yeah, he's he's got a wide variety, um, for sure. And yeah. I, too, uh, yeah, I'm curious about revisiting his work, and uh, maybe I'll put him on my list when I finally finish going through Robert Redford's catalog. <laughs> maybe I'll <laughs> look at Mel Brooks because I, 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 it's not quite as lengthy. Did you ever see Twelve Chairs? Yep, I've never seen the Twelve Chairs. Was it, was I didn't it? like it. You didn't um, like it. I but didn't Frank like it. Langella is in it as a comedic role. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was that great of a movie, but maybe I'll like it more now. Who knows? real confusing guy well if you want to hear more of us but you can't wait until next week's show you can support us over at patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show the saturday matinee we talk about movie news the new trailers plus we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week there are all sorts of other goodies too if you support us at different levels just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel you can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at thenextreel.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott, who runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Yeah. Divisive. Divisive. Uh, <laughs> is what the Amazon brought with us today. We went, of course, because we like this film. We scraped the bottom of the barrel. I picked one that's not funny, but actually quite astute, uh, if I may. Then you have to say, you may. Please, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Uh <laughs> <laughs> we should really start scripting this show um, another this is a one star uh, it says uh, yuck from a customer Amazon customer another terrible script saved by Gene Wilder's sweet performance the same can't light a match scene is here and that scene is also in stir crazy and also in blazing saddles not that funny of a scene the court scene is totally not believable and the ending is really lame they made a Broadway play out of this. Wow. Now that can't light a match thing. Yeah. That's true. Why we didn't say anything about that. That is a scene that uh, has appeared. Uh, that, that's been a thing. I guess I didn't say anything because I didn't know it was a thing. But well, now I, I do. And now I, you it do. Took, it took Amazon comments for me to learn that. Well, they're very uh, insightful. I, you know, for that, Andy, I'm going to mark this one as helpful. I like that you did that. Mm-hmm. I, however, I don't think I'm going to be marking mine helpful, Pete. Okay. Probably not. Mine is by Edward Lawrence uh, from 2014, who gave it one star and said, El Stinko to the max. <laughs> El Stinko acting from two of the best. There is no excuse except for horrible direction. Oh, Edward. Uh, El Stinko to the max, Pete. He was a kid. That El is Stinko decidedly- to the max. Not helpful to the max. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 